0: We are, Oh, you moved my stool. Thank you. Uh, we're going to start a new series. Uh, so I think everybody knows this, but just in case you don't, what we typically do as a church is two times a year we focus on themes, uh, and that is uh, for Lent and Advent. We focus then uh, for, for Advent, we focus on the Incarnation, and for Lent we focus on the Resurrection. And then the rest of the time what we try to do is go through a book of the Bible, and there's a specific purpose for that. Um, if you look at data, um, America is becoming less and less biblically literate. And what I mean specifically on that is even the majority of people who go to church never read their Bibles. Ever, 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 ever. Um, And so therefore what happens is a lot of popular thought about religion is more influential than the actual Bible is. And so I want us to constantly be reading the Bible. To be honest, if you were just like I'm not really into Robert's sermon today. I'm just going to read uh, the Bible. That would really be okay with me. I mean, that'd be great because that's God's word. Our interpretation of God's word is not God's word. And there's a difference there, okay? and That doesn't mean that all interpretations are valid. There's good interpretation and there's bad interpretation. But at the end of the day, we're always interpreting. I want you to read, read the Bible. So we go through a book of the Bible. That way, if you make it to church every week, or watch on video every week, if you don't read Scripture at any other time, at least over the next uh, nine weeks, you will have read through Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. That's purposeful. So today is kind of an intro. We're going to read the first part of it. But it's kind of to give you some, this is the general theme of what the letter is about. So if you have your Bibles with you, or if you don't, the bulletin <coughs> excuse me, has it. It's also going to appear behind me. Uh, we're going to read from the first chapter of Paul's letter, first letter to the Corinthians, and we're going to read verses 1 through 9. And I think, yeah, all the kiddos went to, to the nursery, um, and we lost an adult also? She's still with us. Okay, good. All right, I, I thought we just generally lost her. So this is what Paul says to uh, the Corinthians. He says the following, Paul "...called an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sustenus uh, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ uh, Jesus, and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ." I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech, with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I want you to think for just a second about a question, and it's this. What would others say you talk about the most? Now, some of you can share if you want to in just a second. I'm going to throw out a few that I think some of you might say I talk about the most. Um, If you were my kids or my wife, I hope, I mean, truthfully, I hope Jesus is the first thing that pops out of anybody's mouth. But we're going to go non-Jesus here for just a second. I hope and think that what they're going to say is I talk the most about this concept that's called signaling. Okay, my wife shook her head. That's awesome. Good. If you you don't know about this, you should look it up. It's uh, economic signaling. And what it says is that most of our purchasing and our behavior is about signaling that we are a part of one group and not another group, i.e., You may belong to a certain group, like I hunt with some guys, and all—well, not all of us, but about half the guys there wear Crocs. All the cool guys. Okay, I just want you to know, Jan almost choked when I said that. Camo. They don't have to be camo, Jan. And I remember when, like, only one or two of them have Crocs, and slowly but surely, the the Croc spoilage, I don't know what you would call it, but it's begun to expand to where more and more people, yeah, Heidi, eventually, if your husband, if he keeps on coming, (laughs) nobody wants Crocs other than apparently my mom, but you're interrupting the sermon, you're interrupting the sermon. People, (laughs) People begin to get these things. You've probably seen it. I talk about signaling all the time. I'm convinced that it just drives... A vast majority of our behavior. If you want an interesting read on it, John List is an economist at the University of Chicago. He graduated from UWSP. There's about to be a building named uh, for him at UWSP. He writes about this. Anybody have something that you think other people would say, oh my gosh, Pam talks about this all the time? Julia Child. No, you can talk about Anybody. Anybody. Yes, you do talk about ukulele all the time. Matter of fact, and art, but matter of fact, when you're not at church and I say, hey, Jam, we haven't seen you in a few weeks, it's usually, well, my ukulele practice is happening now. I don't know what GG boys are. Do I? Oh, yes, I do. Okay, sorry. (laughs) Sorry, when you said my GG boys are coming, I wasn't sure as your pastor if I wanted to know what that was. (laughs) So anybody else? What's something that, that... you think other people would say, they talk about this all the time. I heard, did you say work? Work, okay. And and that's not a bad thing. I love what I do. I mean, work, if you really enjoy it, why wouldn't you talk about it? I heard somebody else say something. I said food. food? Food? Food's a good one. Coffee. Co- coffee. <laughs> Coffee's a good I mean, those are good things. And, and one of the things I love is when you really think about it, the people that are the most interesting are really passionate about a few things. And One of the things I don't like about myself sometimes is I find that I'm quite often a jack of all trades and a master of none. And the people I love are just focused on one thing. What I think you're going to find as we read through the Book of Corinthians, and I would encourage you to do it. Okay, this week you can read through the Book of Corinthians, First Corinthians, excuse me, in about an hour. Okay, Uh, it, it takes about an hour to do it. Some of us are faster readers, some of us are slower readers. If you're like I just don't have time to sit down and read, you can listen to the audio book version of it and most i listened to three different audio uh, book versions this week uh, uh, as well as reading it most of them were between 54 minutes and 59 minutes so in an hour you can read through all this and this is not going to sound amazing because this is scripture but paul talks about jesus a whole lot i know you're thinking well it's scripture he's supposed to do that but like I'm going to come back to how often he just mentioned Jesus in the first nine verses. He goes, Jesus, 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 over and over and over again. Because the problem that he was addressing with the Corinthians was they were saying the name Jesus, but truthfully they were referencing a lot of other things when they said it. Now, let's talk a little bit about the history, because history affects things. The book was written between forty-three, excuse me, 53 and 45 A.D., and I want you to think about that for just a second. Some people will say, oh, these books were written long afterwards. That is 20 years after the resurrection. To give you an idea, that's 9-11. Think of what you remember of that. And we are not in an oral history Uh, Culture. We are not in a a culture where most of our history is passed orally. Twenty years after these events is nothing, and this is not like oh the conservative scholar said. uh, Almost everybody agrees that it was written around this time span, and it's not even the first of the of the New Testament books. Now it was written in a context, and that matters. Well, because we live in a context. I mean Stephen's point originally a logging city. I mean, this stuff right here happened in the Wisconsin River, and it still affects us today. That mural I showed, I mean, many of you just started smiling. We have some some friends that watch this elsewhere, um, actually in New Mexico. They've never seen that mural. They don't understand how logging still influences this little bitty city here. Uh, many of us in the room and on video will remember when they lowered the Wisconsin River a few years ago uh, to, to work on the dam, and they found logs that had been there for a hundred years, and people fought over them because they were like, this is worth a lot of money. We, we live in a dairy community, and think of how much dairy farming affects who we are, even if you've never worked on a dairy farm. Most of you eat supper at a time that I as a southerner find just silly. I think you're all you know, grandparents that are eating at like 3 p.m. because most of you eat at like 5 p.m. and down south we eat later because you don't want to cook. You do not want to cook uh, when it's still hot outside and it's never hot outside here but it affects everything. I can't tell you the number of people I know that have never been on a dairy farm and wake up at like 5.30 in the morning and go to bed at 8. And as a Southerner, I'm just dumbfounded by it. Where you're from and where you live affects things. It affects things dramatically from geography to culture. Um, and this letter was written in a specific context and to a specific context. Now, to give you an idea, this is the Mediterranean. This is the Roman world with some off here because Rome was just vast, okay? We cannot, Rome was the most powerful empire the world has ever known. It lasted for a thousand years, maybe longer, depending on if you consider the Byzantine Empire uh, Roman or not. They considered themselves Roman. It, It just was immense, But Corinth is right here. Now, to us, we don't think of that as that big a deal. But as far as as the Romans were concerned, well, it was the gateway between the east and the west and the north and the south. And here's why. If you read um, the book of Acts, you're going to see Paul goes on these missionary journeys. And on his his third missionary journey where he's going to Rome, he gets in a storm. And that storm shipwrecks him. And that storm took place below here. This was dangerous water. But the isthmus, the Corinthian isthmus, that's a fun word to say, right here was the easiest route. There is a channel now that cuts there. And it was better shipping. So what would happen is, well, east and west would connect there. It was the center of commerce. Uh, Corinth as a city was a lot like New York in the sense of commerce in a big way happened there. But, well, also entertainment and religion happened there. So Corinth was not just, truthfully, New York, but it was like if New York and Las Vegas combined. You had all of this happening. And it wasn't just the east and the west, Because the Mediterranean was there, and so you had Africa and Europe that were connecting also right there. So you had a north and south connection. It was not as strong as the east and west, but it was still there, and it still mattered. Now, I'm going to show you a video that I think will help you understand why this is so important. Because what you have happening here is a connection of a ton of different cultures, intellectual ideas... And religious thought. This was my experience at Ruby this week, Ruby Coffee Shop. I, I like to write the sermons out in public with people. If you ever see me at the hospital sitting uh, in the waiting area, that means I'm, I'm truthfully probably writing a sermon that's dealing with suffering. I like to go to the hospital to write those. There's something about I want to be surrounded by people that are creating God's image if I'm going to be listening for God's voice for what He wants to say to the church. This is. Well this is what I recorded from the microphone in my my headphones which means it's muted somewhat. And this was what Ruby was like. What Try to pick a conversation out of that. Like beat, right? uh, I sent this message to, so like many of you, I have family discussion that goes through text messaging or messages service. I sent this to the family thread and my youngest son, our youngest son, responded with, I feel like I, I'm it, like being triggered by too much going on here. It was so loud and it doesn't sound as loud there because my headphones were here and that speaker is focused on closer noise, Imagine trying to pick up a conversation from all of those voices. Like if I had just written down different words I heard. Religiously, that's what's happening in courts, And it's, it's called, it has a term, it's called syncretism. Syncretism is when thought from a lot of different disparate uh, religions and philosophies comes together and forms something new. That's called under the name of, of one of the old things. It's not culture. So I mentioned, so uh, there's a friend that Pam and I have, uh, that, uh, two friends that are in New Mexico that have been watching our services, hey Bart, hey Carol, uh, for probably a year now I'm guessing, they're in New Mexico. Worship in New Mexico is very different than worship here. Uh, worship in various, well truthfully, worship around town is very different. We have people that would come here and go, your music is old and slow. Because we love to sing hymns. And they're going to be like... They need it faster. Nobody's doing that. Nobody's doing that. Okay. Yes, they are. Um, I'm not talking about cultural differences. We have a person who's a part of the church who comes here when he's, when he's not on his mission field in Botswana and he watches uh, the gatherings and he's a part of the gatherings when he's in Botswana. Worship in Botswana is going to be culturally different than here. I'm not talking about cultural differences. If in the summer you go to some of the church picnics, you're going to experience polka worship. That's a cultural difference. Syncretism is when disparate ideas come together. Voodoo is a form of of syncretism where Christian thought and and tribalistic witchcraft joined together to form something new that is not Christian and is not the the witchcraft. It forms an entirely new thing. And the the problem that happens from that is that people can say they are followers of Jesus and they're holding ideas that are the complete opposite of Jesus. And sometimes those those ideas are opposite from the ideas they're actually expressing. Case in point, Corinth, was hugely affected by Greek thought because it was probably the third most important city in Greece. Greek thought said that matter is evil. Generally, there were some philosophers who had a different view, but most philosophers and most religion taught in Greek said that matter was evil. Therefore, your whole job was to escape the body. This came out in Corinth when they start, when Paul will start talking about sex, and he will say two different things that are a struggle with sex when it comes to Christian thought. He will say that some of you are saying that the body doesn't matter, so you can go and do whatever you want. And he even says some of you are doing things that the pagans even think is wrong. And then he will talk to some other people that say the body doesn't matter, therefore husbands and wives shouldn't have sex at all. So literally, they're holding two different views. One of, you can do everything, and the other is, you can do nothing. And neither one of those are Christian. This matters because people begin to to say things about Jesus that are not true. And generally, when we say things about Jesus that are not true, it doesn't lead to grace and freedom. It leads to slavery. We are so good at being religious with non-religious things, and we are really good at pointing out rules. I.e., I loved a mountain bike, and there are people that say, unless you have this type of mountain bike, you're not a mountain biker. But do you know what makes you a mountain biker? If you mountain bike. I've seen people riding on bikes that are like a hundred bucks. There's no way I would ride on it because I'm fairly sure I would kill myself. And they're still riding the trails. That makes them a mountain biker, but we're really good at enforcing rules. And in syncretism, we start saying, unless you believe this, you can't be a follower. And Paul is correcting that. And how does he correct it? He comes back to Jesus. I told you I was going to reference how many times. This is all the times in the first nine nine verses that he references Jesus. Always coming back to Jesus. And he will begin to define how things are different. He will begin to define how Jesus is different from the syncretic thought from the thought that says the matter is evil, from the thought that is about Roman ideology, which was all about status. So we're going to see these problems that take place with the Lord's Supper. And what's the problem that takes pl- place with the Lord's Supper? Well, in Rome, all that mattered was status. And so therefore, the rich would eat the Lord's Supper and would neglect the poor. And Paul comes out and he says, no, you're the church. You're supposed to be different. And one of the things about Jesus is that he forms a new family where there are no and orphans. Rome says that, that the rich should get richer and the poor should get poor. Rome says that all that matters is how other people view you, and Christ says, there's neither Greek nor Jew, male nor female. We are all one in Christ. They were doing the Lord's Supper in a way that spoke the exact opposite of Jesus. He's going to say specifically two things. And when you read uh, 1 Corinthians, I want you thinking through these two things, okay? He's going to say two things that are the biggest difference about Jesus. And they are this. And, and here are the chapters. Love. And you may have heard this, if you've ever been to a wedding, there's a really good chance you've heard the love chapter. And the pastor who was doing uh, the service probably tried his best Barry White voice when he said it's the love chapter, because that's what we do, and it's cheesy. But this is one of those things where it is possibly the most quoted verse in all of weddings, and so often it is the least lived out verse in all of marriages. Jesus was what Paul talked about. And when he talked about uh, Jesus, he talked about Jesus in this self-sacrificial love that considered the interest of others as more important than my own interest and called me to be patient and kind, to to look out and be selfless. And he writes an entire chapter on this and says that love never fails because when he writes about Jesus to a group of people that are hearing voices from all over the world... He says Jesus is about love. And then in another chapter, he writes quite possibly the best exclamation, uh, exclamation, uh, explanation, excuse me, of how the resurrection is lived out in our life. And he talks about the resurrection in the sense of not just that Jesus was raised from the dead, he is, but that we have to live that out in our life now because he has defeated sin in our life and he's raised us to walk new so that we are now free From the sin that so often we get condemned by. Think of how often we think of the worst of ourselves and try to hide it from others. And how often others think of the worst about us. Social media is just full of this. I heard a pastor a while back say that there is no escape from social media hell. Think of all the condemnation that happens. And the second you're condemned, the other person looks better and you just don't ever get out of it. And yet, Jesus' resurrection is the defeat of all the evil that hurts us and we get to walk in a new life. Now, the reason I bring this up, I want you to think back to that video I showed of Ruby because something happened while I was there. What happened, if you've ever been a waiter... This is probably one of your worst nightmares. Actually, I'm going to guess a, uh, uh, a customer who's harassing you is your worst nightmare. So this will be like your second worst nightmare. I'm guessing. I worked at a fast food restaurant. You don't have waiters at fast food restaurants. A cup dropped in the middle of Ruby. And it shattered. What do you think happened to all the noise? All the noise that I was hearing? Instantly. Jan, it was amazing. I mean... Everybody turned. The barista turned red. (laughs) Everybody turned. Truthfully, everybody smiled then, feeling for the barista. It went from noise, from chaos, from uh, tons of conversations that you couldn't make a conversation out of at all, To instantaneously quiet. And what Paul is doing with his letter to the Corinthians is he's writing a love letter to them. Because as you read this, he's not condemning them. He's saying, you're doing these things, but I love you. And he's doing this to get them to stop. To live in the grace that is Jesus Christ rather than the slavery that happens from all the the religious things that we do that that are not about Jesus' grace. And this letter is that coffee cup that's dropping so that hopefully the Corinthians can stop hearing all those other voices and turn back to a Jesus that loves us sacrificially even when he knows how big of failures we are and gives us new life even when he knows we're not worthy of it. That's what we're going to be talking about over the next uh, nine weeks. And that's what I hope you see this week. Because the best thing we can do is remember the Lord's death until He comes. And part of remembering the Lord's death is remembering that He loves us. When you know your failure, He loves you. That He's defeated our sin. He's defeated the things around us that, that draw us into lifestyles that are just not good for us, and we know it. And he wants to give us this new life where suddenly now we don't have to be strong. We can admit our weakness. We can be good at the things we're good at. And He's not trying to say you can't be good at that. But it's not a world where you have to be better than everybody else. And that was the Roman world. In many ways, truthfully, it's still the world. So before I end, does anybody have anything to add? Yes, ma'am, Jan? I don't have anything to add, but I have a question. Okay. Um, was it only the apostles who wrote these letters? No, it was not only the apostles. As a matter of fact, one of the Gospels, uh, actually <laughs> the person who wrote the most, uh, just point blank uh, words, not most books, was a Gentile and a non-apostle. Uh, Luke, the Gospel of Luke, he was not an apostle um, and he was also not a Jew. Well, one, they did not have job descriptions back then. Um, But two, (laughs) two, um, inspired versus asked. So one of the things I love is um, we talk about the incarnation every now and then. And one of the beautiful things about the incarnation is that God takes ordinary things and makes them holy, is is a phrase I'll use every now and then. I.e., this is just bread. It's special because of the fact that we just used it uh, to help us remember Jesus. So that's the way God... Acts. So if you look at most of the miracles, he involves other people. Uh, Jesus goes to heal a blind man. He puts mud in his eyes and tells the man to go wash. That man is now a part of the miracle of healing. So therefore, God's scripture, if God works incarnationally, he's going to use people to do that too. So what that means is Paul's writing letters. Now, I'm pointing back there, that's just straight. What we know is this. The, it's called 1 Corinthians This is in response to a letter that the Corinthians wrote to Paul, and he'll make reference to that. What we don't know and what we suspect is there may have been a letter that he wrote before that. So what may have happened is he may have written the Corinthians a letter, which was not saved, though might have been saved. I know it it may be a part of the second letter (laughs) to Corinthians. It gets a little weird there. But we don't know that it was saved. The Corinthians write back to Paul to say, hey, all of this stuff's going on, what do we do? That was not saved. 1 Corinthians was saved because what happened was the church said, we know this is a letter and we have a lot of letters that were written. But this one really speaks to us and we feel like we hear God's voice through it. And what happened was, uh, it's called the canon or the codex, which just means book. Uh, the churches began to gather all of these letters together saying, we have to make sure and keep this one. And so the church of Robert would then send this letter to the church of Jan and say, this really spoke to us. You need to read this. And all the major churches began gathering these together and um, they came together around 300 AD um, and looked at these codexes and almost all of them were the same. There were um, two Books that were major discussion. The rest of the books were almost all the same. Uh, That was Hebrews, and that was primarily because we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. The old saying in seminary is, only God knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. We do not know who wrote it. And uh, the book of Revelation, because it's so different from all the other books. So what I'm saying is, um, this was not like, I'm writing scripture. It's like if I wrote you letters, and I wrote because I'm your pastor and I, I care for you and I love you. And you said, you know that letter from August that Robert wrote me? Every time I read that, I hear God's voice. I have to save that one. But you know the one that he wrote to me about mountain biking? That one just doesn't speak to me as much, and I don't save that. So these were not like Jesus saying, you're going to write the Bible now. But it was the church going, God speaks to us. It's incarnational. Does that answer it? Oh yes, they were slowly but surely for, uh, forgotten. On a whole, we have some others um, that uh, were saved, but um, they're not. They just read differently. So there's this thing called the pseudepigrapha that you can read. If you want a really cheap copy of it, so if you buy the academic version of the pseudepigrapha, it's going to cost you about 300 bucks. If you want a cheap version of it, look for a book called The Lost Books of Eden. It makes it sound controversial. It's the pseudepigrapha. And these are books, when you read them, like one of my favorite parts of the book is uh, a book called The Shepherd of Hermas." You're going to read it and go, well, that's good. But it reads very different than scripture. Uh, I think of it like modern-day uh, devotional literature. You, like, you may have read the Footpen, uh, Footprints poem at one time or another. It's like, oh, that's nice, but it reads so different from Scripture. And the biggest thing is is Scripture challenges us all the time. There's going to be some stuff that we read in Corinth, and you're going to be like, well, I don't like that. Well, it, He's God. He should challenge us every now and then. If He's not challenging us, He's not God. He's our version of what we would like things to be. I've got a copy. I I do not have the academic version of the Pseudepigrapha because my Greek professor was like, buy the the Lost Books of Eden. It's the exact same thing, and it'll cost you like 15 bucks. But you can read it if you want. Um, Yeah, probably not. Anybody else? Yeah, and that's the Apocrypha. It's a little different. And I would encourage you to read that also, but I think they read different. So, like, I really love in the Apocrypha, uh, Daniel and the dragon and Daniel and Baal. Uh, they're both very interesting stories, but they read very different than, than most of Scripture. Um, that doesn't mean they're not good. There's a difference between inspired Word of God and good devotional literature. Uh, the is not bad. I would encourage you to read it. I just don't quote it as Scripture. For me, when I read it, it's like it's just obvious. I'm like, oh, this is different. So, but I would encourage you to read it. Well, have, like, some... Yeah, and all right. I up, yeah, like I never the Bible. Well, don't worry. That's not just <laughs> that's why it's literally why we read so much scripture here. <laughs> Anybody else? Then here's what I want you to do this week. I want you to think anytime you can. Jesus is love. Jesus is resurrection. Because the answer to all the different voices we hear, we hear, the syncretism that comes into our life, is to focus on the real Jesus of Scripture. And one of the things He will do is He'll tick you off every now and then because He's going to challenge you. And one of the things He'll do is He'll comfort you when everybody else says you shouldn't be comforted. Love and resurrection do that. They challenge us and they comfort us. That's what we're going to be talking about over the next nine weeks. So would you join with me in our closing prayer and video? I'm sorry I didn't bring my phone up here. If anybody had any, any points they made, I didn't see them. You, you just look. Do you see anything? Okay, so I, I think I didn't leave anybody out then. Um, then if you'll join with me in our closing prayer. and Holy Ghost. Amen. So this week, I hope you are like Maya when, uh, when Natalie was trying to come up here for Lord's Supper, that you know precisely what you want and what you want is Jesus. And when all the other voices uh, come over and offer and say, hey, we'll pick Maya up, you respond as she did, which was to shake her head and grab her mom. When Jesus is the answer for us, it's not trite. It is life-changing. Have a great week. Go in his love. Go in his resurrection. Let's tear down.